Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 14 edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new case from the Court of Appeal limits the exclusive remedy protection for coworkers. Here's what happened in the partially published case of Light versus the California Department of Parks and Recreation. Melanie Light began working as a seasonal park aide at the Department Octillo Wells District in San Diego County in 2010. In 2011, she was promoted to a permanent position as an office assistant. Kathy Dolinar was the superintendent of the Octillo Wells District and the direct supervisor of another co-worker named Lita Seals. Seals and her supervisor, Kathy Dolliner, were close friends. In fall 2011, Seals recommended plaintiff Melanie Light for an out-of-class assignment as an office technician. An out-of-class assignment is a temporary assignment to a position in a higher classification with an accompanying increase in pay. Before the end of that assignment, SEALs recommended Light for a second out-of-class assignment as a management services technician. Melanie Light was friends with a co-worker, Delane Hurley. But SEALs believed Hurley to be a lesbian. So Seals repeatedly made comments to Light intending to make her uncomfortable about her friendship with Hurley and to enlist Light in her harassment of Hurley based on her sexual orientation and to encourage Light to stop all contact with Hurley. Seals' actions allegedly caused Light to suffer emotional distress and Hurley eventually took a medical leave for stress herself. While Hurley was absent on leave, Seals asked Light to go through Hurley's workspace and remove any personal items. But Light objected because she did not feel comfortable going through Hurley's things, but Seals insisted. Seals also told Light to move into Hurley's office because Hurley would not be coming back to the district. Light again objected, but Seals told her the move was not negotiable. This situation escalated, ultimately involving Kathy Dolinar as superintendent and a convoluted series of related events. Ultimately, Melanie Light filed a lawsuit against the department for retaliation, disability discrimination, and failure to prevent retaliation and discrimination. The trial court granted defendants motions for summary judgment and dismissed the recreation department and her former supervisors, Lita Seals and Kathy Dolinar. But the Court of Appeal reversed the trial court in the partially published case. As to co-workers Seals and Dolinar, the court concluded that the workers' compensation exclusivity does not bar Light's claim for intentional infliction of emotional distress under the circumstances of this case. As to the department, the court concluded that triable issues of material fact preclude summary judgment of Light's retaliation claim, but not her disability discrimination claim. The exclusive remedy provisions are not applicable under various circumstances, such as conduct where the employer stepped out of their proper roles, or conduct of an employer having a 
questionable relationship to the employment and which may be essentially defined as not stemming from a risk reasonably encompassed within the compensation bargain. The ruling in this case differs from a recent opinion by Division Three of this same appellate court that interpreted the California Supreme Court's 2008 opinion in Milosky v. Regents of the University of California too narrowly. So the court concluded that absent further guidance from the Supreme Court, the justices were unwilling to abandon the long-standing view that unlawful discrimination and retaliation in violation of FIHA falls outside of the compensation bargain. Therefore, claims of intentional infliction of emotional distress based on such discrimination and retaliation are not subject to the workers' compensation exclusivity remedy. Senate Bill 1160 and Assembly Bill 1244 introduced new changes to the workers' compensation system for adjudication liens. If a medical vendor has a criminal conviction that ends with an order that the liens will be dismissed, the workers' compensation liens will automatically be dismissed without any action. But where the criminal case disposition is silent regarding the outstanding liens, the DWC Administrative Director will schedule a consolidated proceeding to determine the outcome of all of the liens. It will be presumed that the liens of the convicted medical provider were based on services connected to the fraud which resulted in the criminal conviction. The Labor Code specifically requires that the medical provider affirmatively prove, by a preponderance of the evidence, that the services were not connected to the fraud even assuming that the medical provider is able to overcome this hurdle, the employer will retain its ability to defeat the lien on all other grounds. The industry will now be given an opportunity to see how this new law will work. The DWC has scheduled lien consolidation status conferences this August for suspended providers Philip A. Sobal, M.D., Michael R. Drabot, and Michael D. Drabot, his son, on August 16, 2017, uh, that's August 16, August 17, and August 23rd, respectively. All three cases will be heard in Van Nuys before work comp judge William Gunn. Combined, the three have roughly 13,000 liens, which have been consolidated pursuant to the chief judge's order. The list of lien claims for Philip A. Sobal, M.D., is 322 pages long. For Michael R. Drobot, it is 183 pages long, and Michael D. Drobot is 74 pages long. The documents reflect the case number, injured worker, employer, and claims administrator for each lien. Michael D. Drobot, the former CEO and owner of Pacific Hospital of Long Beach, pled guilty for his role in a scheme to illegally refer patients for spinal surgeries. The DWC suspended him from participating in the California Workers' Comp System on April 28. Michael R. Drobot operated California Pharmacy Management and Industrial Pharmacy Management, companies that also participated in the kickback scheme. He pled guilty in the U.S. District Court last year to conspiracy and illegal kickback charges and was suspended from the workers' comp system on May 15. 
Philip Sobal, MD, is an orthopedic surgeon in Los Angeles, and he was suspended last May based on a criminal conviction involving fraud and abuse of the work comp system. Sobal pled guilty for participating in the kickback scheme at Pacific Hospital of Long Beach, illegally referring thousands of his patients for spinal surgeries. CVS faces fraudulent clawback pricing class actions. A California woman is suing CVS, the largest pharmacy chain in America, for allegedly charging more to customers who use insurance to pay for their prescriptions. The lawsuit seeks a class action status. The lawsuit accuses CVS Health Corporation of participating in a fraudulent scheme and claims the plaintiff paid $165 for a prescription that would have only cost $92 without insurance. The problem is within the copays sent back to the pharmacy benefit managers. They are the intermediary between insurance companies and pharmacies who negotiate the prices that insurance companies have to pay the pharmacies. But consumers picking up prescriptions at their neighborhood CVS are blind to this contract. The agreements are based on confidential contracts, meaning the consumer pays the amount negotiated even if that amount exceeds the price of the drug without insurance. As a result, CVS can overcharge customers by collecting co-pays that exceed the pharmacist's price and then remit the excess payments back to the uh, PBMs in what is known as clawback payments. CVS denied the allegations, claiming that co-pays for prescription medications are determined by a patient's prescription coverage plan, not by the pharmacy. Also, CVS says it does not engage in the practice of Kobe clawbacks. A former policy director of the Federal Trade Commission called the alleged conduct by CVS egregious and added that PBMs are in dire need of federal regulation. He said that no market is as thinly regulated as pharmacy benefit managers and they're increasingly taking advantage of it. The particular problem of clawbacks has only recently gotten attention, mostly at the state level. Last month, Connecticut Governor Dan Malloy signed a bill to stop the practice, and at least 16 other lawsuits have been filed against various drugstore chains accused of engaging in the clawback practices. And now our crime report. The FBI is probing an Orange County Addiction Center empire. Sovereign Health is a mental health and addiction provider with a footprint throughout Southern California, several states, and India. And Tanmoy Sharma is its chief executive. Sharma started Sovereign the year after he lost his medical license in the UK. He was at the time a psychiatrist in the UK until his license was revoked for conduct deemed dishonest, unprofessional, and misleading. He then moved to California and started Sovereign Health with one center and six beds that grew to 17 centers with 743 beds. A giant map hanging on the conference room wall details another 851 beds in development across the nation, which would bring the total to 1,600 beds. 
Last year, his company sued HealthNet, one of the nation's largest insurers, for failing to pay $55 million for medical services rendered by sovereign-related companies. According to the Los Angeles Superior Court complaint, Sovereign Health's claims were routinely denied by HealthNet. In a countersuit, HealthNet argued that Sharma and his companies are engaged in massive fraud that harms all consumers. HealthNet's suit said that sovereign-related companies and many other addiction treatment providers have abused the Affordable Care Act in a manner that threatens the ongoing viability of health insurers. HealthNet alleged that Sovereign and its affiliates comprise one of the largest groups of fraudulent providers. HealthNet's countersuit said that within the span of a single year, Sovereign's companies went from billing HealthNet less than $50,000 a month to more than $13 million a month. HealthNet claims that many clinics, including Sovereign's, have been engaged in a sophisticated fraud involving paying kickbacks to buy hundreds of patients from teams of brokers or cappers who find the patients in 12-step programs, AA meetings, homeless shelters, and jails, and then sell them for cash to the highest bidding clinic. What HealthNet describes echoes a recent investigation of the industry by the Southern California News Group. This summer, federal and state agents raided several locations of Sovereign Health as part of an ongoing FBI probe. No arrests were made when officials executed search warrants at sites in Culver City, Palm Desert, San Clemente, and San Juan Capistrano. The search warrants were filed under seal and officials were barred from discussing the extent of the investigation. Litigation and FBI probes are not the least of Sharma's worries. The article in the Orange County Register also reports that body brokers from other providers are in his parking lots trying to steal away his patients and their insurance coverage every day. Medical care and workers' compensation is based upon evidence-based research. Sadly, some of this scientific evidence is nothing more than fraud. Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston has agreed to pay $10 million to resolve the allegations that its stem cell research lab received federal grant money by fraudulent means. Former lab scientists allegedly used manipulated and fabricated data to get approval for grant applications that were submitted to the U.S. National Institutes of Health. The U.S. Attorney's Office said that the controversial laboratory work involved a study concerning the potentials of the human heart in repairing itself. Unfortunately, other scientists were not able to replicate the results of the study, which was published in the journal Circulation in September 2012. The American Heart Association, which publishes the journal Circulation, issued a retraction for the 2012 paper, prompted by reviews, which determined the data were compromised enough to warrant a retraction. The U.S. Attorney said that medical research fraud not only wastes scarce government resources, but also undermines the scientific process and the search for better treatments for serious diseases. The government alleges that the laboratory included invalid and inaccurately characterized heart stem cells, improper protocols, 
misleading or reckless record keeping, and discrepancies of data and images that were submitted to obtain grant funding. The lab received a total of $42 million from grant awards. And in regulatory news, opioid abuse has just been declared a national emergency. President Trump said it is a serious problem the likes of which we have never had, and now it's a national emergency. Trump has instructed his administration to use all appropriate emergency and other authorities to respond to the crisis caused by the opioid epidemic. The President's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis had recommended in a report on July 31 that the President immediately declare a national emergency. And the chairman of the President's Opioid Commission, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, thanked the President for accepting the first recommendation of the Commission's report. The Commission's report to the President said a declaration would empower his cabinet to take bold steps and would force Congress to focus on funding and empowering the executive branch even further. The report also called on Washington to grant waiver approvals to all 50 states to eliminate barriers and allow treatment at Medicaid-funded residential facilities. Trump's statement was welcomed by members of Congress from both parties. So far, six states have declared statewide emergencies for the opioid epidemic and used the declaration to help increase access to the opioid overdose reversal medication naloxone. The DWC has issued a notice of November 6, 2017 public hearing regarding proposed updates to the Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule regulations. There have been many new scientific and medical developments since the MTUS was initially adopted in 2007. Because most of the treatment guidelines have not been updated since initial adoption, new scientific and medical developments have not been incorporated into the MTUS. The treatment guideline must be able to keep up with the evolving nature of scientific evidence to ensure that its recommendations accurately represent current standards of care. Thus, the primary policy objectives of the new regulatory proposal is to update the medical treatment guidelines to accurately represent current evidence-based standards of care. Most of the proposed changes simply reference the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine's most recent treatment guidelines to the general approaches, clinical topics, and special topics section of the MTUS. The public hearing is scheduled for September 6 at 10 o'clock a.m. in the auditorium of the Elihu Harris Building, 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. Members of the public may review and comment on the proposed evidence-based updates to the MTUS until 5 o'clock p.m. that day. The Drug Enforcement Administration has proposed a 20% reduction of opiate medications that may be manufactured in the U.S. next year. Their proposal was published in the Federal Register and is now available for public inspection. The reduction affects the more commonly prescribed Schedule II opioid painkillers, including oxycodone, hydrocodone, oxymorphone, hydromorphone, morphine, codeine, meperidine, and fentanyl. 
According to sales data obtained by the DEA, demand for these opioid medications has dropped. The proposed aggregate production quotas reflects the total amount of controlled substances needed to meet the country's legitimate medical scientific research, industrial, and export needs for the year. When Congress passed the Controlled Substances Act, the quota system was intended to reduce or eliminate diversion from legitimate channels of trade by controlling the quantities of the basic ingredients needed for the manufacture of a controlled substance. The purpose of quotas is to provide for an adequate and uninterrupted supply for legitimate medical need. The DEA must balance the production of what is needed for legitimate use against the production of an excessive amount of these potentially harmful substances. The DEA establishes a quota for more than 250 Schedule I and II controlled substances annually. Once the quota is set, the DEA allocates individual manufacturing and procurement quotas to those manufacturers that apply for them. DEA may revise a company's quota at any time during the year if a change is warranted. Members of the public can comment on this proposal over the next 30 days. The WCIRB Governing Committee voted to submit an advisory pure premium rate filing to the California Insurance Commissioner. The filing will propose rates that average $2.01 per $100 of payroll, which is 14.3% less than the industry average of $2.34 as of July 1, 2017, and 5% more than the average approved July 1 advisory rate of $2. The modest increase follows five consecutive advisory rate decreases since early 2015 that have totaled more than 27%. Some of the factors contributing to this reduction over the last year include medical losses that have continued to develop downward, claim settlement rates that have continued to accelerate, increasing loss adjustment expense trends have moderated, and increased wage growth is being forecast. The CDI will schedule a public hearing to consider the filing, and once the Notice of Proposed Action and Notice of Public Hearing is issued, the WCIRB will post a copy in the Filings and Plans section of the WCIRB website. And in financial news, a recent report from Moody's Investor Service shows that the U.S. workers' compensation sector has improved significantly since 2011 as the domestic economy and labor market have gradually recovered and insurers achieved cumulative rate increases. However, competition is increasing and profitability, while good, is diminishing. Further margin compression is likely over the next two years, according to the report, which noted that the work comp sector's fortunes are closely tied to the U.S. labor market, given the compulsory nature of the benefits the insurance provides. The falling national unemployment rate, 4.4% as of June 2017, from near 10% several years ago, is positive for the sector. And, if you're wondering about how much significance the work comp sector has, 
Moody's report notes that WorkComp is the largest single commercial line for the U.S. property and casualty insurers, comprising nearly 19% of U.S. commercial lines premium volume and approximately 10% of the property and casualty industry's total direct premium written, behind only personal automobile and homeowners insurance. Responding to questions posed by property and casualty, the vice president and senior analyst for Moody's based in New York said that one general observation is that the claims frequently trend has been flat to slightly negative for work comp for a long time as the economy has added a significant number of jobs in the last couple of years. In addition, with medical cost trends in the mid-single-digit range, they expect overall loss cost trends to remain low unless there is an uptick in lawyer involvement or medical inflation. And the group said they cannot comment on what a risk manager should or should not do with regard to maintaining and controlling costs, but they can say that the role of a risk manager and in insurance organization is governed by its enterprise risk management principles and guidelines. Most well-diversified national work comp writers adhere to strict risk control standards set forth by their standards and guidelines. So the complexity of assessing risk would depend on an insurer's exposure profile and geographic diversification. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.